Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Philippians 2.12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You, you guys can be seated. seated. Some of y'all are shocked we got two verses today. That doesn't mean we're getting out early. Um, we've got some, some good stuff to look at, and we're going to dive in deep here. You know, uh, these are kind of some tricky verses, though. Uh, these are going to be some that I think push back. If you want to overturn all of Christian belief in a single statement, if you want to turn everything on its head, in a single command, it might be this. You save yourself. To feel awkward? It does, doesn't it? The Christianity bears the name of Christ because we believe that we need saving. And Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. And to make a statement like, save yourself, is terrifying for us. And it, it kind of goes, it kind of turns everything on its head. Think about it this way. You can go from singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and then maybe change the song around to something like Amazing Self, how sweet I, am I that saved myself for me. It sounds a little different, doesn't it? It kind of changes the entire tenor of what we talk about. You look at this communion table over here and think about how different that would be if we had to save ourselves. I mean, we, we come to the Lord's table and we take bread that represents the broken body of Jesus and we take a cup that represents the shed blood of Jesus that paid for our sins. And if, if Christ is not the one that saves us, but we save ourselves, then I mean, we might as well just raise a toast to ourselves, right? Like, way to go, you glorious, righteous, wonderful people. Right? It makes you a little uncomfortable when you start turning things on its head, doesn't it? See, that, that the phrase to a Christian, that phrase, save yourself, is terrifying. Because we know that, that we can't do it. And if you're starting to feel uncomfortable with that whole idea, then good. That means you've been taught well. That means you understand something about the truth of the scriptures. Christ is at the center of Christianity. It's not Ralphianity or Calebianity or Stacianity. It's Christianity. Right? It's, about, it's about Jesus, that he's always the centerpiece of the communion table. He's the reason why we sing Amazing Grace, and he's the one that drives everything that we do, because we know that we can't save ourselves. We, are need, we need a savior. But it obviously raises some questions when you read a verse like Philippians 2.12 that says, work out your own salvation, right? Because that feels like it pushes against what we know to be true about Jesus and what Jesus did for us. And so we begin to ask questions when we look at a verse like that and say, well, if we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus and not by works, then how am I supposed to work out my own salvation? 
What does it mean? Who's at work? Is it, is it, is it me that's at work in my spiritual growth or is it God? Is it, what does it mean that I'm safe and secure in God's hands if I have to work out my own salvation? Does that mean it's all up for grabs? And so these are the questions we're going to look at today. And these verses have generated an awful lot of conversation over the years and some debate. Um, and it's, it's important for us to, to look at these verses. One of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible is you do come to these places that make you wrestle when you read your Bible. And it's helpful, I think, for us to explore them together. So we're going to do that today. And as we do, uh, we're going to just look at these two verses. And I want us to unpack them and take a little bit of time to unpack what, the, what it is that they're trying to say. And we sometimes refer to verses like these as problem passages. Because uh, when, we, when you're reading through your, through your Bible, you come to them and every now and then, you ever have this experience where you're reading and you think like, I've been around this stuff for a while. And you read and you get to a certain verse and you kind of go like, man, what's... What's that getting at? What's it trying to say? And it, it, it causes us pause and makes us think uh, and, and maybe ask some questions. So here's what I want to do. I want to start off. Can I give you three principles uh, to apply whenever you come across a confusing passage? I want to start just doing that. And then we're going to actually do that together as we walk through this passage. So three principles to use whenever you come to a confusing passage. The first is uh, three things we need. We need a, a theological framework. Uh, if you're going to come to a, a verse like this, what happens so often is we come to one verse and when we get ourselves in trouble is when we take that one verse out of context and we make it say something more than it, than it really says. When we take that one verse and apply it in kind of a carte blanche um, way to other areas of our lives that maybe it doesn't apply to. And so one of the things we need is we need to develop a theological framework. We need a grid in which to see the verses of the Bible and to know how it is that they fit into the things that we believe. And so we need a theological framework. The second thing that we need is we need a grand biblical narrative. We need to understand how that verse fits into the whole of the Bible. So when you go Genesis to Revelation, you need to understand that God is unfolding a narrative or a story that's taking us from in the beginning God created the earth. He spoke and he created a world and he created humanity and he placed us in. And then there was the fall in Genesis 3 and everything began to unfold. And so you get like two chapters at the very front where things are really peachy and things, two chapters at the end and everything else is in, in the middle is a mess, Right? And so the rest of the Bible is God working out how it is he's going to restore and not just restore, but renew and bring about an even better world than the one he created. And so that's kind of this grand biblical narrative that we need to understand what God is doing. And so when we look at these verses, a verse like work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, how does that verse fit into the grand picture of what God's doing, creating a people that, that, that are made in his image and restoring them and bringing them about a new world where all things are made new and we get to, re to live with him forevermore. So how does it fit into the grand story of what God is doing? And then the third thing is the immediate context of the verses. So when you look at those two verses in Philippians 2, what's going on before and after those verses? What's going on around there that might inform how we're to understand those two verses? So those are the three things. Um, you want to look at a, a theological framework. You want to look at a grand biblical narrative, how this fits into the whole of what God's doing in the world. And then you want to look at how is this, what, what's the, the logic of the argument and how they fit into that conversation 
conversation. So that's what we're going to do. This may be new to some of you, but I want you to know this is why we teach through books of the Bible. It's why we uh, go try to get people connected in small groups where they open up the Bible together and say, how does this apply to me? And how does it that I can study this for myself? And, and I want you to, it's, it's also why we do equip classes and equip nights, because we want to equip the saints so that you can understand that which is true, so that when you come to a confusing verse in the Bible, you know where to go with that. And it doesn't begin to rock your world, but it begins to help you, but you know that you can work through this and have, have a solid foundation for your faith. The churches sometimes are really good at making noise, but not so good at making disciples. And so we want to be about helping you grow as a disciple of Jesus and helping you understand how, where, where to go when you wrestle with a verse and aren't sure exactly how it fits into your own life. Uh, but I want to encourage you, you can do this. So we're going to practice this today. You can learn how to study the Bible and you can walk through this. You just need someone to teach you. So we're going to work on that today a little bit and hopefully that will help us in that direction. So let's practice this starting in verse 12. Minus begins, he's writing to people with whom he has a long, deep, lasting relationship. He calls them my beloved. Uh, if you go back to Philippians 1 at the beginning of this, he talks about that, that I thank God in all my remembrance of you. You bring me joy because from the very first day till now, we've had a partnership in the gospel. And there's kind of this, this kind of three, three stranded rope that unites the whole book of Philippians where Paul's saying, man, I'm connected to you and the gospel unites us all. And so there's a common cause in the gospel. There's a common connection in the person of Jesus, and that brings us together. So he looks at these people that he has this long-term relationship with and says, my beloved, we might say friends. You're my friends. You're family to me. And he speaks to them in, a, in kind of a, a tender relational way. And then he's going to begin to speak to them that Notice what he says. He says, therefore, and uh, the old saying is, when you see a therefore, you should stop and look at what it's there for. Like, what is it pointing to? Why is he connecting the dots? Because anytime there's that word shows up in the Bible, it's trying to connect what's come before it to what he's about to say. And so it's a hinge that says all this stuff plays into what I'm about to tell you. And so when he says, therefore, he's actually pointing to the context of these verses. What's happening around there? How do these two fit, verses fit into the logic of what the writer is saying? So the immediate context before these, uh, there's an issue. And I want to see, if I just read a couple of verses to you, I want you to see if you can figure out what's the issue that the spiritual leader is trying to address, okay? Just listen to this verse. He says uh, uh, that I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he goes on, that's, that's 127. Then in 2.2, 2, he says, I, hear, I want you to make my joy or complete my joy by being of the same mind, of the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And what's he dealing with? Unity. He wants them to be unified. And just in case you're missing that, that he's got some concerns about this, we're going to look at verses 12 and 13. What's verse 14 say? The very next thing he says is do all things without grumbling or disputing. Um, this guy's been in a church before, right? Like Paul, I mean, like if you've ever been in a church, you understand. Like there's, there's a tendency that sometimes creeps into the life of a church that, that, that creates danger for a church that it becomes just a bickering, arguing, grumbling group. Uh, you don't have to look very far to think back to uh, the Exodus and Moses leading the people out of slavery, the people of God out of slavery. I mean, they were beaten, whipped, uh, treated as slaves. He rescued them. And all they said when they got out was, we just want to go back there. Like that was somehow better. And so there's just this 
kind of grumbling contentiousness. And what Paul's going to say is we're to be unified. There's a common ground that we have in the person of Jesus and a common cause in the gospel of Jesus that we're to be about as the people of God. And so he, in verse 27, says, only let your, uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Meaning, don't be divided. Give yourself fully to the common ground uh, and the person we, or common connection we have in Jesus and the common mission we have in his gospel work. And then he's going to give us an example to follow. And he's going to point to Jesus in the very first, in what we looked at last week, and Chris walked us through in Philippians 2, when you go verses 1 through 11. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and the, the, the language there is actually, there's an assumption built into the way it's stated. He's saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is. And he goes on and says, and if there is of any comfort from his love, any participation in his spirit, any affection, any sympathy, meaning if Jesus means anything to you and has impacted you in any way, then let your manner of life be worthy of him. Live in, in a way that honors him. And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Meaning if you're in Jesus, then you, you understand this mindset. You, have, you need to live out what's in you. You've been placed in Christ. Live out what it is to be humble like Jesus, to be servant-hearted like Jesus, to lay down your life like Jesus, to be obedient like Jesus. Jesus was obedient, Philippians 2 says, even to the point of death, and not just any death, but death on the cross. And in that culture, what they would have understood is that they viewed death on a cross as the most vile, horrific death that there was, and they wanted to avoid it. And if they knew that they were Roman citizens, they actually would not crucify them because it was so insulting. They would actually decapitate them because that was better than being, being on a cross. Uh, if it's me, like, they both sound bad. Like, I don't know how you put a value judgment on which way you get killed, but they did, and they understood that. And they also understood that when Jesus died on a cross, that when they looked at a Roman emperor, they called him Lord and Savior. But there's a Lord and Savior of Jesus that didn't exalt himself, but Jesus laid down his life, was humble, became human, not just any human, but he became a servant of all humans. And not just that, but he died the most horrific death on a cross. And therefore, it says God exalted him above every name. God raised him up so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the king above all kings, not Caesar, but Jesus. And so therefore, what's Paul say? Therefore, as you've always obeyed, so now obey, not only in my presence, but in my absence. Do you see what the therefore is, that, why the therefore is therefore? Um, is because he wants to point back and say, because of who Jesus is, that's the reason why you ought to obey. And so I want you to obey. And notice he says, um, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. One of the things that you understand about Philippians is Paul is writing this letter from prison. And he's in prison for his faith. And so he can't be with the Philippians, although he says, I long to be with you. But he says, so whether I'm present with you or whether I'm absent, meaning still in prison, I want you to obey just as you've always obeyed. I want you to continue to honor Jesus. Philippians 1, he, he said that same idea. He said, whether I come to see you or am absent. So um, he's calling for them to, to, to really own their faith. Isn't that the definition of spiritual maturity? That whether someone is there making you do something or whether you're doing it or, or whether they're absent, but you're going to continue to do what's right. 
Uh, that's kind of what you want to see. That's the definition of spiritual growth or maturity is there's this development that you act the same way whether someone is there or not. And uh, parents, and I encourage you, this is what we want for our kids is we want them to own their faith because they see Jesus and they want to obey whether we're present or not. And, And if we make it so much about our being there to kind of harp and haggle them into obedience, and yes, we have to tell them what to do. I, and let me say this, let me say this just to be really clear. Um, you're the parent, so be the parent. Uh, I see this over and over in our world where parents want to be friends, and you need to be a friend of your kid, and as they mature and grow, they become more like your friends, but you still have to be a parent. And so you, you do have to tell them right from wrong. You do have to show them the, the way to live, but what you want to do as they move towards adulthood is you want to begin to give them some independence so that then they learn to obey on their own, whether you're present or whether you're absent. And Paul, as a spiritual leader, is telling the Philippians, my heart for you is that you're going to look at Jesus, and because of him, you're going to want to obey, whether I'm present or not, because you know that's what's best for your own spiritual health. And so he says, I want to release you into that. I want to call you into that. And then Paul's going to shift, and now we finally get to the statement that generated all this controversy, right? So the next statement there is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, work out your salvation sounds like save yourself, doesn't it? I mean, at first glance, the first time you look at that, it sounds like he's saying, save, save yourself. And just in case you were feeling overconfident that you could do it, he says, with fear and trembling. Because he understands uh, that, that there needs to be a little bit of uh, a sense of awe and wonder about what it is that he's about to say. When was the last time you experienced anything that made you so afraid you shook? You think of fear and trembling, something that actually made you quake a little with fear. Um, th- this is the, it sounds like a terrifying idea, but in order to understand what Paul's saying, we need to do some work. And it's important, I think, when he says, uh, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, the, that's verse 12, then he connects that with verse 13. Verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, there's some, there's some natural tension in these verses, aren't there? Do they, do they, when, when you read them and you hear them the first time, do they feel like they're almost contradictory? You work out your salvation. And it's like, well, God is at work. And you, you're kind of, I think, meant to ask the question, well, now who's doing the work? I'm doing the work or God's doing the work? And the answer is yes. And we're going we're gonna to unpack some of that. But one definitely precedes the other. But the natural tension, I think our first instinct when we see something like this is to try to resolve the contradiction or try to, try to take away the tension. We want to make it easier. How do we soften it? And so to do that, we either have to soften verse 11 or, or verse 12, and, and we tend to try to deny one side or the other. So we might tone down the human side by appealing to divine grace and say, well, you have to work out your salvation. No, but God's gracious, so don't really worry about it. It doesn't make much difference. So we might try to soften it that way. Or we might go the other direction. We might say, well, I don't want to be legalistic and I don't want to be all about works and all about you doing all the right stuff. And uh, I, don't, I don't want to lean that far. So um, let's kind of have more of a passive understanding of our job is just to kind of let go and let God. And so in some ways we might focus on verse 12 or we might focus more on verse 13 in order to try to resolve it in a way that just feels easier to us. Can you understand, you kind of feel that tension? Why it might be that? Now, if we place too much emphasis on verse 12, we might slip into this idea that salvation is a matter of our own untainted free choice and by our own efforts that we can actually work for our salvation. 
that if we just work hard enough, we can save ourselves if we just focus on verse 12. Now, we know that that's a line of heretical teaching that goes from Pelagius, Arminius, and others, and kind of is passed down through church history that people have leaned in that direction, and it's always been problematic. Now, if we put too much emphasis on verse 13, um, we might just expect that, God, uh, that God's going to do everything for us, and we don't have to work at all. And that's not true either. And so we live in this kind of tension between verse 12 and verse 13. And Paul actually puts them together in a way that you can't separate the two. In fact, Paul, it's like he makes the strongest possible statement about the importance of our effort in verse 12. And he makes the strongest possible statement about God being the one that drives the work in verse 13. And he puts them right together so that you can't really get rid of either one. And he says, these two things are connected and you need to understand that. Now, the danger if we just try to resolve the tension and step away from it is that we don't actually grow through the beauty of what, God's, of what Paul's trying to get us to understand. And there's something good that Paul wants us to understand that we need to understand here in order to, to really kind of, kind of grow through this tension. And so when Paul says, um, work out your own salvation, He's, he's applying this great force to these words. In fact, uh, the early church father Chrysostom, who spoke, who, who's a Greek father and is very familiar with this kind of original language, says that it means we're to act with great effort, with great care. Uh, the word actually means to achieve, to accomplish, to bring about, to produce, to create. So when Paul says that we're to work out our salvation, he's saying you are to bring about the effects of your salvation in, in some sense. Uh, it's important for us to then dive down through. So how do we understand the confusing verse? Because that, that, can, that can feel confusing to us when we understand that we're also saved by grace, right? So let's look at this. So remember the three things we talked about? We talked about three things that help you with a confusing verse, a theological framework, a biblical narrative, and then the immediate context. Uh, we're going we're gonna to work through those with this verse and just help us to understand how it is we can, uh, what, what it is that Paul's saying here. Verse, the first thing is, let's look at the context. What's the context that he, we already talked some about the context, but the context of this verse, verse 12 and 13, come right on the heels of, uh, of what he says about Jesus, right? And so Philippians 2, 1 to 11 are all about the glory of Christ, his becoming a man, his death upon a cross, his saving, saving us and serving all humanity through his, his death, and then God's exalting him as Lord. And so it, it depicts Christ as our savior and as our, as our king. And so nothing Paul says in verse 12 is going to undermine the glory of Christ that is presented in verses 6 through 11. So understanding that, however we are to understand verse 12, it's got to be seen in light of what we just said about Jesus and everything Jesus did for us in verses 6 through 11. So he's not going to be saying that, that Christ's death was meaningless because he already told us Christ is the Savior that's exalted as king. So the second thing we need to look at, what is our theological, uh, we know from our theological framework that Paul's not saying that we have to save ourselves. Now, when you think about a theological framework, this is why sometimes uh, learning a little more systematically how to understand your faith is important because it tells you how some of these verses fit into the, the larger picture. And in, uh, in their theological framework, what, you, what you're kind of dealing with here is the difference between uh, two terms. One is salvation, and salvation is a big umbrella term that means everything God is doing to bring about your good in the world. 
It's a God coming to broken people, bringing about their restoration, their salvation, their new life, and their, future, their, their transformation so that they become more like him and then their glorification down the road. All of that fits under this big umbrella of salvation. When you talk about salvation in the Bible, sometimes it refers to it in past tense, that we've been saved. Sometimes it refers to it in the present sense, that we are being saved now. And sometimes it refers to it in future tense, that we are going to be saved. Now, there's theological terms under that, that we, under that umbrella of salvation that we need to understand. One of those is justification. Justification is the, the beginning of the spiritual life when we are justified by faith. And, and that is referred to typically in past tense. So you've got justification, then there's sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we're changed, we're made to look, uh, we're, we're, we're set apart to become more like Jesus. And that oftentimes is talked about in the present tense. We are being conformed to the image of Christ now through our spiritual growth. And then there's a future tense called glorification. And glorification is that one day we will be changed. We will become like him. We will look like him. We will no longer struggle with sin, but we'll be made to be like Jesus. So justification, sanctification, glorification, all three are under the umbrella of salvation. And so what's important as we understand this verse is that we need to understand the difference between what does it mean to be justified, which is secure and which is sure, and what does it mean to be saved in a broader sense of that broader umbrella. So Romans 5.1, we see this in, in places like Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified through faith, that's, what, what tense is that verb? Past tense, since we have been, meaning it's already accomplished. We've already been declared righteous. We've already been justified. It's not up for grabs because we've put our faith in Christ, because we understand who he is. All of our sins are paid for. We've been justified. We've been declared righteous. And so the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. And we understand that that is sure and, and, and that, that, that our salvation is going to be secure because we've been justified. And so that's, Important for us to understand the past tense nature of that. The initiative for our salvation comes from God. Our justification establishes our right relationship, and it doesn't come from our right behavior, but it comes from our faith in Jesus. Romans 11.6, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of our good works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by grace. And yet, we're called to work. So that's justification. Now, the other side of the word salvation sometimes has a bigger, broader context. So Romans 5, 9 says this, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. So we have been, meaning it's already happened. It's already ours now. Justification is something we possess right now since we've been justified by his blood. Much more will we be saved from him, by him from the wrath of God. Do you see how that works? Since we're already established in right relationship through the justification that we have through Jesus' death and our faith in him, we already have that now. How much more will we be saved from God's wrath in the future? So salvation is both past, or both past present, and future. Justification is something that already happened in the past. So this is important for us understanding when Paul is saying that the believers must work out their salvation, he's not saying they must work for their salvation. Those aren't the same thing. 
To work out uh, your salvation is not the same thing as to work for your salvation. Your salvation is established through your justification. And because of that, you need to work out of that, that standing in right relationship with God. And you work out of that to move forward in your spiritual growth, meaning you working out the truth of your salvation and bringing that into more light in your life. But you're not working for it because it's already been granted to you by faith because of Christ. You know, it's some way uh, this illustration breaks down, but I think I was thinking about how, how do you, how do we, how can we understand this a little more? I was thinking about World War II. Um, what was the battle that really achieved the victory of World War II? What do we call it? D-Day. We, most, most of us look back and you know that D-Day, when, when we stormed the beaches uh, and, and, and won the victory, we established a beachhead that, that led to eventual victory in the war, right? Now, but what do we call the day when that victory was actually celebrated? That was V-Day or V-E Day. Victory in Europe Day. And so in some sense, that, that victory was established through D-Day, but there was still a whole lot of territory that needed to be taken. There was still a whole lot of, uh, of bad guys that needed to be put away. There, there was still a whole lot of things that needed to be negotiated before that victory was finally there. In some ways, it's the same thing for us, that we've been justified, meaning the victory is assured, the victory is secure. There is no doubt that we will one day be saved, but... Man, there's still territory in our hearts that need to be delivered from the power of sin, aren't there? There's still ways that this needs to be worked out in our own life so that we look more like Jesus. Because I, I don't want to go to stand before him one day and still have all my junk with me. Any of you ready to get rid of some of your junk? Any of you tired of getting beat up by, by sin in the world? Any of you want to see some deliverance from some of those things that continue to make you stumble and fall? The, the, the reality for us is there's territory in our hearts and in our lives that still need to be brought underneath the, the, the care and the reign of Jesus. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord, but there's still stuff in my own heart that don't confess that Jesus is Lord. There's still stuff in my heart that says Jeff is Lord and that needs to be set aside so that Jesus can take over because that's gonna work itself out for my own good. So that I think is what, we, how we need to understand and, and really approach this. Now, the third thing, um, when you think about the grand biblical narrative that Paul is not saying we need to say of ourselves is to understand the, the kind of big picture story of the Bible. It is crystal clear that we cannot save ourselves. In fact, from the beginning to the end, the whole thing is like a comedy of errors. Like every time we try to fix anything, it just gets worse. It's like, hey, I think we'll just build a tower to heaven. How's that gonna go? You know, that didn't go well. Hey, I think, you know, we can be more like God. Let's try a little bit of this, uh, a little bit of this fruit. You know, it just didn't work well. You know, David's like, hey, I think I need more wives. Let's see how that works. Like, I can be more powerful. Yeah, and that ends up undermining his entire kingdom, right? Like, every time we try to come up with a solution, things get worse and not better. And so you see that throughout the whole scriptures. And so Paul is going to point us to that grand biblical narrative, even in these verses. So when you think about um, kind of what, he, what it is he's saying, that you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but it's more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His good pleasure is the ultimate end. That, that ultimately, this is all about God. This is about God's glory. This is about God's delight. And God delights in, in, in transforming us and making us look more like him. Because it's, that's what we need. 
for our own lives, but also for the lives of those around us. And so when you look at this, that little word in the middle of between verses 12 and 13, it's a little three-letter word, for. For, it's God who works. Work out your salvation. For, it's God who is at work in you. And that word's very important for our understanding because it connects the, the two verses and puts them together. But ultimately, it points us to the ultimate end, that this is ultimately what God is doing for his own good pleasure. Now, Paul's already tipped his hand back in Philippians 1, 28. He, he mentions salvation, and here he brings up that idea of salvation again. And he says salvation, he puts this little parenthetical statement there, and he says, for it is from God. So salvation, it's from God. He already told us that uh, just a little bit ago, that, that ultimately God's the one that brings about our salvation. But here he's going to unpack that just a little bit more and saying that, that they are, we are able to work out our salvation precisely because God is at work among us and in us. And so the way in which we work out our salvation is to allow God's work to have its fruit in our own lives. So he's going he's gonna to make this statement, it's God who works in you. Remember Philippians 1.6, verse we looked at just a little bit ago, uh, several weeks ago? For it is God, uh, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will continue, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus is a, is a phrase that you see in the Bible. Oftentimes, this kind of an eschatological phrase, it points to the future. It points to when God makes everything right through Jesus and, and kind of at the future day of when, when judgment comes but when God's restoration of all things takes place and the renewal of all things. And so it's pointing at that future day. And he's saying that I am confident that when, when everything is made right in the end, that God who began a good work in you will continue to perfect it until that day. Meaning there's a grand narrative that you're a part of and God's doing something in your life. This verse is very much connected to what you see in verse 13. Verse 13, when he says that, God is going to, it's God who is at work in you for his good pleasure. Um, God's the one that's driving everything, and that's important for us to understand. Um, now, on the other hand, when you think about this, our dependence upon God's activity is nowhere more explicit than here. It's God causes that our, our work to happen. So it's God at work in us that causes us, our works to take place. So uh, it's important, I think, to say this is not just some legalistic rule-following thing. When he says, work out your salvation, he's not just saying, hey, dummy, obey the rules and like slap at a hand. It's something much bigger than that that's going on. What he's saying is God is at work in you, that God who pours his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit is going to produce something in you, as Romans says. Romans 5.5 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Colossians 1.9, for this purpose, I also labor and work, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. And so it's, it's something that, yes, we are working, but we're working through the work of God in us that's, that's working mightily within us and, and by his spirit. And so there's this union kind of vulnerability that I think we're supposed to feel in this passage when we come and say, man, I have to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And that scares me to think that I'm, I, I need to make sure that my life is, is being lived in a manner worthy of the gospel and worthy of Jesus. And I'm not sure I can do it. And he says, for it's God who's at work in you. That's where we find the hope. God is at work in you so that you can work out your salvation. And really this is, is trying to remind us of, of important things um, that God wants to do in our own lives. Notice the two ways it says that God works in us. He works to will and to work. 
in us. So the will, that's internal, right? It's your desire. It's what you want. So God's going to change your want to. And then, then he also changes your work. He changes on the external. So there's an internal aspect and an external. It's holistic. There's kind of this holistic life transformation that God is doing in us. And so um, it's beginning to be unpacked. Romans 9.16, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Meaning it's God who's doing something in us. And it's a part of his grace. It's not a contradiction of grace that brings us about. I want to look at the last phrase, for his good pleasure. Do you want to live for God's pleasure? I think sometimes we look at this, and there's so much talk in our world about narcissistic leaders that sometimes we think, well, that seems pretty selfish of God. What we need to understand is that God's delight is to delight you. And when your delight is in him, it's going to bring nothing but flourishing and thriving to your life. It delights, uh, Gordon Fee says this, it delights God to delight his people. And so what God, if God wants to delight his people, what does he need to do? He needs to give you more of himself. He needs to help you see more of who he is. He needs to help you understand more of the gospel of Jesus and his grace. He wants to understand more of his love for you and how he wants to pour his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit so that you might walk with him and have fellowship with him and enjoy him as the old creed says, that our call is to enjoy God forever. We should delight in him as he delights in himself. One guy said it this way, and this is a little bit long, but uh, bear with me here. It says, God works, but we also work. And the relation is that because God works, we work. All the working out of our salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. We have not only, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, we have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and working. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that the energizing grace and power is from God. So the more we work, it's just evidence that God's more at work in us. And those two always need to be together. So how do we apply this lesson? Let me just um, kind of summarize this, kind of what we can see in this. Um, first, do you, do you understand how those three, those three things help you understand a confusing verse? How putting it in its theological framework helps you understand what, is it mean, what does he mean by salvation in this verse. Putting it in the grand biblical narrative, you understand what it is that God's unfolding in, in, in the grand story that ultimately this is all going to work for his glory, but it's God at work in us. But also understanding the context that nothing that, that says when you work out your salvation, it's nothing that's going to minimize the glory of Christ. Christ's been exalted. And so we can glory in that. So let me ask you this. When we baptize you, why don't we hold you down and just send you on to be with Jesus? I mean, that could be an approach, right? In some ways, that might be easier. There's some of you I've thought about it. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm totally kidding. Just want to make that, don't, don't tweet that. Like, I'm going to get myself in trouble. It's always the stuff you don't plan that gets you in trouble. Um, we don't hold you down because there's still work to be done. So, so we, we bury someone in baptism so they align themselves with Christ's death and the salvation that comes through him. But then we say raised to walk in newness of life. 
Because he was resurrected, that resurrection life begins to unfold in your life. And our job is to take the truth of all that Jesus has done for us and the fact that your salvation is secure, the fact that your salvation is sure, the fact that your salvation is gonna be fulfilled and to live all of the rest of your life in light of that, learning to walk with him. And as you walk with him, you're being changed to look more like him and you're being conformed into the image of Christ so that you're preparing yourself to one day be with him for all eternity when he makes all things new. And that's the picture I think that Paul wants us to get here. So the first thing we need to do is let the gospel take root in our lives so that that which is true of us begins to get worked. We, we begin to work not for our salvation, but work out of the truth of our salvation in the nitty gritty stuff of our lives. And that's why as a church, we talk about helping people wake up to deep, meaningful life in Christ. That's what we wanna be about is helping you unpack all that God has done for you in the person of Jesus and bring that into the reality of your, of your everyday life. So I think, um, let me give you just five things, or four things that we see about spiritual growth in these two verses. I know that sounds scary, but it's gonna go quick. Uh, how does spiritual growth happen in our life? Uh, spiritual growth happens um, with others in the church. You notice when in this verse, when he says, you work out your spiritual, uh, uh, you work out your salvation, He's actually saying you all, meaning this is, a, this is a corporate thing. This is something we do together. And so there is no spiritual growth uh, that happens as a solo project. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. It's always something we do together. And so it says you all work out your salvation together, learning to live in light of what you've been given in Christ. So it's part of a community. Secondly, it happens through intentional effort. Uh, I hate to break this to you, but uh, spiritual life's work. When he says work out, uh, some of you flinched, started twitching, like, oh, work out. That sounds like exercise. I had a, had a friend who used to say, I'm an avid endorsement, very comfortable with being a couch potato. And, uh, working out made him nervous. Well, sometimes spiritually, we do the same thing. But we do have to work. We have to exert ourselves. We have to devote ourselves. We diligently give ourselves. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, I, uh, not that I've already obtained it or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love that. I'm pressing on, I'm fighting, I'm striving, I'm, I'm fighting to, to take hold of the truth of mine. Why? I want to make it my own. I want to be responsible for my own spiritual growth and development and health. Why? Because Christ has made me his own. So it's not out of fear. It's not out of hoping I can get there, but it's because I know I'm secure in Christ. He's made me his own. Because of that, I want to strive all the more to bring the reality of him to bear on my life. So it is through intentional effort. It's also through God's work in you, internally in your will and externally in your work. And there ought to be a sense of joy for you to hear that. And I know sometimes we, we look at the controversy and we get lost in that. But I'll, here's what I want you to hear. God wants to work in your life. God wants to change you. God wants more of your heart to be his. God wants to see you freed from slavery to the things that bind you and, and, and cause you to fall. God wants to see you flourish. And the way for him to do that is to help you learn to delight in him all the more. So for his good glory, for his good pleasure, he's going to work in you so that you can work out your salvation. So he's going to be at work. And lastly, it's a confirmation of grace, never a contradiction of grace. See, when, when our lives are changing, when spiritual growth is happening in us, it's never a contradiction that says, well, you have to work your way to it. No, it's a confirmation that God's grace is already at work in your life. And so it's overflowing into uh, producing something good in you.
So let me end with this. Friends, we walk, with, we walk in confidence. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. I am sure of this. I am confident. I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God's not done with you yet. God's at work. He's going to do stuff in here that produces fruit out there. And he's going to do it through him at work in you. But it's going to take you locking arms with him and going to work and doing the good stuff that he calls you to do. But I want you to say, we walk in confidence with our chests out, our shoulders back, and our heads held high. We belong to Christ. We, and if we, if we belong in Christ, then we will reign with Christ. Christ of whom it, uh, Philippians 2 said this, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So friends, I'm sure Christ reigns. Because Christ reigns, we don't have to, we don't have to worry but we do have to work. We have to work out the truth of that in our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for each of us that we might, um, that we might walk by faith in your grace, but we also might work by faith in your grace. That your grace might be at work in us, that you would pour out the love of the Spirit in our hearts, that we might, uh, we might desire you, we might desire your way, we might trust you more fully. We might love you more completely. Father, all of it for your glory, for your pleasure. Make it so in each of us. Amen.